What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. Our guest today is Miriam J. A. Chauncey, a Haitian-Canadian-American writer, a Guggenheim Fellow, and HBA Chair of the Humanities at Scripps College. She's the author of Autochtonomies, Transnationalism, Testimony, and Transmission in the African Diaspora, among other books, including four novels, the latest of which is What Storm, What Thunder. Her book that we are discussing today is Harvesting Haiti, Reflections on Unnatural Disasters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kat. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Miriam, I want to start with a little about you. What is your background and how did you come into your work? Sure. Uh, so I was born in Port-au-Prince at the beginning of the second half of the Duvalier regime, so in 1970. Um, and my family raised me partly there and then in Quebec City in Canada, where my parents uh, eventually emigrated. Um, then they went west towards Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is where I grew up in terms of grade school, high school, uh, undergraduate education. I did a master's in African-American literature on James Baldwin at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. And then I came down to do my PhD, down to the United States to do my PhD at the University of Iowa, where I wrote on Caribbean women writers. And that's how I got started on uh, writing critically as a critic on Caribbean literature. I eventually, a few years later, wrote the first book on Haitian women's literature in English. Uh, and all the time I was also writing fiction, though my novels came out much later uh, when people caught up to Caribbean literature and uh, Haitian women's literature. And that's why I do what I do, because I'm very invested in Caribbean women's voices, my own and others included. Uh, and shedding more light, especially on Haiti and Haitian issues, which is where harvesting Haiti comes in. I'm going to merge my next two questions. You dedicate the book to your mother and then later spend time talking about the strength and the plight of Haitian women, Mm. um, which we're going to get into more deeply in a bit. But I'm interested in um, your mother's influence on you. how is she reflective of the spirit of Haitian women and in what ways is she responsible for your politicization? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, so my mother, so it's, it's, this is actually a really interesting question because my mother bears the same name as another Haitian woman uh, who is highly visible in, or has been highly visible in Haitian women's politics, who I interview in Harvesting Haiti, uh, and that woman is Adeline Magloire Chancy. And my mother's name was Adeline Lamour Chancy. So often people confused the two Adelines, you know, in terms of who, which one was my mother. Uh, and in fact, so my mother was not a public person, um, but she had a very, very heavy uh, influence on, on me, both in terms of uh, sensibilizing me to Haitian issues. She's the person who taught me how to read uh, Haitian Creole. You know, when I was a kid, she would do my hair and uh, have me read from the poetry of the first uh, Haitian poet to write in Haitian Creole, which was Mauriceau Leroy. And that's how I came to be able to read Creole, which is something that a lot of Haitians actually can't do, uh, whether they're in Haiti or outside, because it's considered a more oral language and vertography came uh, later. 
And um, she was always reading, you know, so from a very young age, I was reading early, I was reading uh, widely. And we were also with my father had a lot of discussions about, you know, Haiti, which we all had in common. Uh, and my parents were also born in the mid-1930s, which is the end of the U.S. occupation. So without sp- speaking about it outright, they also were educating me about the impact of intervention and the kinds of harms it caused in the country. Uh, and then, of course, they left um, for different reasons at different times and actually met in France, um, tr- attempted to return to Haiti um, when I was born And of course, that didn't work out because of the politics under the dictatorship. And they're both uh, teachers. Um, And so, you know, I have to say, though, that I didn't realize the extent of my mother's influence until I wrote that book on Haitian women's literature, which was called Framing Silence, Revolutionary Novels by Haitian Women, which was published in 1997. Because when I wrote that book and started reading Haitian women, And Haitian women started publishing novels under the U.S. occupation, like as a resistance to the occupation. Uh, The first novel appearing in 1929 by a woman named uh, Virgile Valsin. And when I was reading those books, I was sharing them with my mother. So I had a lot of photocopies of these novels and we would discuss them. And as I was writing that book, my mother said, well, do you want to uh, read an essay that I wrote? and uh, read in front of Duvalier. I was about 25 years old when she told me about this, and I had never heard this story. Uh, And so my mother was the valedictorian of a law school, I think around uh, 57 when Duvalier came into power. And she actually had been an accountant until that time. So she was already working, you know, in the working world, was an accountant. But a few years earlier, women had been admitted to the law school and um, it was announced that the, that following year, uh, that when she was about to enroll, that the valedictorian would receive a, a scholarship to continue their studies uh, or do a JD in, in France, in Paris. So my mother decided she would go to law school and win this scholarship, which she did. Um, and the prize, uh, aside from getting the scholarship and going to, you know, the ticket out of Haiti, was also to do the the speech. And her speech was about human rights in Haiti and about women's rights within human rights more largely. And the fact that if men in Haiti believed that they had achieved, uh, you know, their humanity by having the right to vote, but denied it to women, then they had failed, you know, the project of Haitian sovereignty. And what was interesting is that when she gave me that speech, there were a number of sections that had been deleted from the essay that had that bared on this issue of women's rights within the nation. And she could remember verbatim what she had written and that had been uh, censored. And it's a miracle, actually, that she survived because this was in a period where the regime was killing women like this, who, you know, advocated for uh, universal rights and women's rights within those rights. And we, my understanding is that n- nothing happened to her because her name had already been sent abroad and she was already awaited abroad. So she had to, you know, she had to stay alive. Uh, and, uh, you know, the end of the story is quite interesting. She went to Paris under that scholarship and a few months later she went back to accounting. So she's, she was a brilliant woman 
Uh, she passed away in 2019 uh, and always advocated for people's rights, uh, human rights, women's rights, Haitian rights, even though she herself was not uh, a public person except for this moment. And so I wrote about this way that she got out of Haiti and framing silence, but also it informed my way of reading Haitian women's literature, where there's often a covert way of talking about politics, of acting on behalf of other people's rights uh, while effacing oneself, which is something that I see happening a lot to Haitian women. The tragedy of which, of course, is today that Haitian women are often taken for granted, even as they sustain everyone else. I knew that was the right question to ask. (laughs) (laughs) You're the only one who's asked that question, and I'm so thankful for it because it's an amazing story. Well, I'll just tell you, you know, in my um, efforts to cover Haiti, um, one of the threads I've really been trying to tug on and have had a hard time um, finding people to speak to it is what is happening to Haitian women. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I get a lot of men that are available for these yes, interviews that's um, true. that are not equipped to talk about it. Not that they don't care, but not equipped. Um, so that, that is something that um, I've been excited to explore with you and we'll talk about some more. Can later. I add just one little thing to, you can to add whatever you want. This is all about you. <laughs> a little addendum to that story. Yeah. Um, the two Adelines actually were in law school at the same time. There's actually a picture of them, um, you know, like the, the class picture um, Adeline Magloire, who I interview in Harvesting Hasty and uh, became one of the first women minister of Haiti, uh, I, I think uh, during an interim government right after Aristide, um, you know, was, was displaced in 2004. Um, she, you know, so it's just interesting that then they were confused for each other for a long time because Adeline Chancy, the other Adeline Chancy, had to flee under the Duvalier regime to Quebec, where my parents were also at the same time. And then, you know, we moved on to Winnipeg, but we would often get each other's mail. And it was only very recently after the earthquake uh, that the other Adeline reached out to me and said, people keep telling me you're my daughter. Who are you? (laughs) And that's how we connected. And that's how I was able to uh, meet with her in Haiti and find out more about, you know, the Haitian women's movement, you know, uh, con- in contemporary time, her involvement in it, and do that interview with her that's in the book. What a beautiful way to start our conversation. Um, we talked about this a little bit, Miriam, before I pressed record, but as a radio show host or journalist, and I say that in air quotes because really I'm an activist that somebody made a mistake and gave a radio show to. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are a few issues that I feel sometimes are so large to unpack, right? Mm. That I fear I'm not doing it right mm. in order for people to really understand the magnitude of the conversation we're about to have. The mission mm. of this show is expose, agitate, and build. Our, um, our, our effort is to see if a radio show, right, uh, founded by two radicals can actually be a partner mm-hmm. in movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, Palestine for a long time was one issue that I was like, yes. I have to talk about this. And oh my gosh, if I don't talk about it right. Yes. Um, and, you know, the history is so complex. Mm-hmm. Haiti too. Absolutely. So many moving parts. If you were going to set the context for this conversation about mm-hmm. Haiti, its mm-hmm. current state of affairs, what would you say to my listeners that you would like them to hold as we move through this conversation? Mm. That's very difficult. 
So, <laughs> so the way I try to frame these conversations, so Harvesting Haiti is a collection of my essays that I wrote from 2011 to roughly around 2014 after the earthquake. So keynotes, op-eds that were published in the Caribbean and elsewhere, trying to help people think on a more polemical level about uh, the politics of you know, what is happening on the ground, what Haitians on the ground desire for themselves and their, their futures, uh, and also what does it mean, especially if you're on the outside, to engage with Haiti in a responsible manner. So that, that's essentially what I try to do in, in a variety of ways in those essays. Uh, but I also published in 2021 the novel uh, What Storm, What, uh, what Thunder, which is, also, which is a fictionalized account of the um, of the earthquake in Ten Voices. And in, in different ways, what I try to explain in the sort of post-2010 context, reaching to, you know, today, 2023, is that we really need to understand why that earthquake was so devastating, but it was not just the outcome of climate change or a natural disaster, but of, you know, decades-long um, you know, century-long degradation of the country because of the success of the Haitian Revolution at the end of 1803, declaring the nation sovereign in January 1st, 1804. So that would be my shorthand way of saying that you, in some way, when you look at the present situation, and now we're looking at a situation where there are paramilitary, you know, uh, people on the ground. Um, there are, um, you know, interventions from the UN, from the US already taking place, even as nothing, quote unquote, officially has been uh, put into place, right, in terms of the impending intervention. But from what I understand, things are already being moved into place on the ground. And this is um, just post uh the assassination of Moise, and I think so, that so, to like hold that too, right? Yeah. So the assassination takes place in the summer of 2021, right. uh, followed by the second earthquake in a in a different part of Haiti, which killed 2,000 people. And then we have to remember that the 2010 earthquake killed uh, over 300,000 people and displaced and you know left food and home insecure 1.7 million people. I think. Uh, you know, uh, quite a number were also left insecure uh, with the second earthquake, the death toll not quite as, you know, as high, but it was in an area that was less populated. Um, and there were still, at the time of the second earthquake, at least 50,000 people from the first earthquake, 2010, who were still under tents. So, so you have to hold all that in your mind as you try to think through, okay, when people see the situation today, what is it uh, an outcome of? You know, um, and so what I try to bring to the fore, because sometimes the question is, well, why should we be concerned about what happened in 2010 if there are things happening now? And and what I try to do is, as I've, I've just narrated, kind of build back from the present moment to the distant past so that people can understand that that, that the response, the international response to that success of 1804 is what has occasioned every intervention since 
to the present day degradation of a country. So we can certainly have a conversation about, you know, the dictatorship uh, and it's, and, you know, what occurred under that dictatorship. We can certainly talk about, um, you know, under Mui's governmental irresponsibility. We can, we can talk about other things, but none of those things are as significant as what put them into place in the first place, which is interventions from the outside, making sure that democracy would not have a viable foothold uh, in this nation that that had, you know, under uh, formerly enslaved, um, you know, guidance, you know, leaders, uh, people who were formerly enslaved and freed themselves and freed others, right, to think about the nation, the idea of nation state in a new way, which is that freedom for all including women, by the way, because right. women were actually heavily involved in the, in the revolution, even though that's less remembered in, in the historical record. But there's some beautiful record. images that capture yeah. that. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and there are scholars now, you know, uh, bringing out that information more and more, um, that women had equal standing, you know, in the, in the revolution. And so that vision of equality, uh, and also a nation that called itself Black, Irregardless of race, right? Like when Dessalines created the first constitution in 1805, it declared every citizen of Haiti black with a capital B, of course in French, you know, <laughs> or Creole, uh, meaning that everyone who was a citizen of a country from that moment on agreed that they were part of a black cultural, you know, reality that valorized its African roots. So that is something that, you know, thinking through uh, emancipation in the United States in 1863, 65, if you've, you know, uh, Juneteenth. Let's uh, put that emancipation in air quotes. In air quotes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And somebody was informing me that Brazil was uh, several decades later than that, you know, the the other most populated nation by formerly enslaved uh, people. Um, Then we, we start realizing that Haiti was far ahead of, you know, many movements for liberation, but was also su- successful in achieving it. That's so, and that was the threat that it, that it created in the hemisphere, but also globally in terms of a vision for ending colonial paradigms. And so, so then by the time we get to the earthquake, the earthquake is, of 2010 is as deadly as it is because the neglect that Haiti has suffered over time through interventions, interference in its politics and, uh, you know, election processes is such that there are no stable infrastructures in terms of building codes, in terms of uh, rescue, in terms of aid, uh, and the death toll is immense. And then recovery is also hampered by the very same mechanisms, right? So that aid comes from the same colonial and neocolonial powers that have crippled the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time we get to 2021, $16 billion have gone into Haiti, like in a swiveling door manner. They've, it's gone in and it's gone out. Right. $16 billion. And by the time we get to the aid that comes after the second earthquake of 21, August 21, uh, I think the numbers have been calculated around $22 billion. None of that money really has remained in Haiti. And uh, yeah. 
I have to stop you because you are answering every question I have on this paper. <laughs> Sorry. Which is funny because actually, and, and I wrote it in my little script there, is that as I'm going through your book, I would write in the, yeah, your book is all like marked up now, but I would write in the margins and then like you would say what I wrote. Mm. So I knew this was going to be a Kismet interview, but I want to tell my listeners that they're yes. listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Miriam J.A. Shansi, who has a new book out called Harvesting Haiti, Reflections on Unnatural Disasters. And you've spoken about this in, in the last, uh, your last set of answers for freedom fighters. And I include myself in this, right? Mm-hmm. The Haitian Revolution is a source of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And from where I sit, so much of what world powers, and I put that in air quotes, have been doing mm-hmm. is punishing Haiti yeah. for not only the win, yes, but for the inspiration. Not only it ignited then, mm-hmm. but has the potential to ignite now. And I will just put it also, I think that is also what we are seeing in Palestine. Yeah. No, the absolutely. dangers, right, of us being inspired by mm-hmm. folks being willing to sacrifice it all mm-hmm. to throw off the colonizer's boot on our neck. Absolutely. And these things are connected, right? Because uh, the idea then is is to control a group of people who persist in resisting, whether in Latin America or in the Middle East, to control those geographies for, you know, global empires. This is what's going on. It's done under different guises, but the end result is the same. Yes. Yes. You you said something uh, in the introduction to you. You talked about the impact of the Haitian Revolution on then enslaved Africans and African Americans, right throughout the Southern Hemisphere of the United mm-hmm. States. Though you know, we also know that existed in the Northern Hemisphere of the United sure. States. They just try to pretend uh, sure. that it did not. And then you go on to talk about the ways in which that impacted the ability for Haitians to then immigrate into the U.S. in the 20th century, right? The, mm. the rebuffment, I might have just made up a word. But as I was reading that, I wrote in the margins, and then again in the 21st century with Trump's disgusting comments. Yeah, And just wondering if you will speak a bit about the lasting prejudice and its current impact on the mobility of Haitians across the globe. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the third part to that just came to me as you were talking about moving from, you know, where where do you move from, Canada, U.S., your experience moving in Black female Haitian skin mm-hmm. from colonized mm-hmm. country to colonized country. <laughs> that is so complicated. Um, where do I start? Okay. So Wherever the, you want. <laughs> the first part of the question is the legacy of the Haitian revolution yeah. in the hemisphere. Uh, and and one thing I think to note is that on the one hand, you know, the Haitian Revolution is looked at, you know, in, in a number of Afro-descended communities as a kind of beacon. And then I have, you know, noticed that often what happens is that there people don't have as much information about what happened after, like the punishment, as you say, uh, and that it's important to note that Haitians you know, from different class backgrounds, whether it was the intellectual class, you know, before the Duvalier regime that had to flee, you know, that resisted and fled and wrote in exile, uh, journalists included, um, or people who, you know, don't have the capacity to leave, you know, or to, to be refugees, not refugees, but, uh, you know, um, 
welcomed in another country for you know under political um, auspices um, resist on the ground, resist in different ways, you know. And and I, I think it's really important to understand that the Haitian people have a tradition of resistance that is ongoing, you know, ongoing to this very day, you know, where just we know that in the last months, especially this summer, they were resisting, you know, the armed, you know, whatever you call them, gang or paramilitary, paramilitary forces, you know, that have been um, violating the population. They fought against them. Uh, before the assassination of Moise, people took the street to the streets for over two years, asking for his for him to step down. You know, and they're asking for the current uh, prime minister, who you know was not an elected official, also sort of to sat step himself down. down in the seat. <laughs> yeah, sat himself yeah. down with U.S. support. With U.S. support, uh, which was the case with Moise and um, with you know other leaders before that. Uh, which were not necessarily the choice of the population. And the population takes to the streets, you know. Just recently I was hearing about um, high school students who were taking to the streets, you know, demanding their rights of protection, uh, of education, of a future. So, so I think that's the first thing I want to sort of underscore, which is that the Haitian people are in complete knowledge of their own history. And in fact, I was watching a new documentary by a Haitian filmmaker, last name Antoine, uh, on the uh, legacy of Dessalines, right? The, The first leader in 1805. And it was amazing because he was interviewing uh, young people in the street about what they knew about Dessalines. And they knew the whole history and were very Mm. proud to tell the interviewer who they were, right? But they're children of Dessalines. And I thought, this is remarkable. This is not just a documentary where he has, you know, talking heads who are like the professors. They're there too. But he's also talking to everyday people who know where they come from and what they're fighting for, you know? Uh, so that's the first thing. And if I, if I may, and I think that like that has been such an intentional effort in the United States, right? To mm-hmm. make sure that, Black folks here do not know our history. Right. Because through the knowledge of that history, right, then we become more than slaves or sharecroppers or even protesters, right? Absolutely. Empowered, and that empowerment then informs organizing for resistance and thus resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this makes me think um, if I can slip in a sort of uh, popular uh, reference, I was watching this uh, second season of High on the Hog the other day. Uh, but it was really interesting because the interviewer was talking to a man who is descendant of sharecroppers who is still on the land uh, and was talking about the shame around the word plantation. And the response from the person he was interviewing was that, you know, you know African-American hands, you know, tilled that soil. That is our land. It is our land. It is our legacy. And we have to reclaim even the word plantation. And we should be proud of what was produced from this land, even if, you know, in terms of sharecropping, it was an unfair system and it was exploitative system. It, it, we need to reclaim, you know, that work and also the expertise that went into all of that agricultural movement, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I thought, okay, this is, this is an interesting shift, you know, to try to, and, and so it's, so it was interesting to, to look at that because it made me think about, 
the connection for me to Haiti is the extraction of the resources that is ongoing because Haiti is very, uh, you know, natural resource rich. Yes. Um, within a couple of weeks after the earthquake, a lot of rights to mining were sold uh, to the Dominican Republic, to uh, Canada. Um, you know, how did that happen when you're, when rescue missions are underway and thousands of people had died? You know, it it's really boggles the mind how another group of people thought this would be a good opportunity to secure rights, you know, to uh, extracting resources and then, of course, extracting labor, right? Because then the next plan for those who had survived the earthquake was not to make sure that they had safe housing, potable water, that their educational systems were put back in place. The the first uh, response was actually the UN plan for Haiti from 2009, previous to uh, the earthquake, which was uh, factory work. Well, let's build some factories outside of Port-au-Prince so that there will be fewer people in the capital in case this happens again. And then we have a captive workforce. And actually, that didn't work out uh, very well either because people, the factories weren't built and people were just left stranded out of the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, without potable water, without proper uh, nutrition, without first aid. Um, but it, it, the, this, I, the fact that outsiders could have this plan for the population also tells you how they think of that population as endlessly available for exploitation, right? And, and this is, of course, to deny the humanity and to say you are still more or less a population that we wish to enslave, you know? I was going to ask you about the way in which aid from the U.S., from the U.N., um, that aid is couched inside of the enslavement mentality. We yeah. will help you mm-hmm. in order to cultivate you into labor for yeah. our profit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and so maybe this reconnects to second part of your question, which had to do with um, how Trump and others talked about Haiti, you know, during his um during his, what do we want to call it? Rain. <laughs> his call it administration, rain. <laughs> to be polite. Um, but, you know, the comments that Trump made about Haiti, which I'm not going to repeat, um, were similar to comments made by white evangelists just after the earthquake, basically damning Haiti. And, you know, what I think is interesting about that is that it's suppo- it, I think it is meant to secure in the American imagination and maybe a global imagination that such countries and their populations are not worthy of being considered humanely, right? Um, And so if they're not, if they're subhuman and if the country itself is not even worth our consideration, then we as people who should hold our elected officials responsible in the countries that then enter, (laughs) you know, countries of the Southern Hemisphere, Middle East, uh, so forth, to do these kinds of things, we are less able to construct a counter to these constructs to say, oh, no, you're not going to do that in my name. So this is why we really need the information about why these things are happening, because it's a, it's a deflection, right? It's a creation of an alternative discourse. So if you hear that, oh, these people, you know, worship strangely, um, you know, they don't know what's good for them. The country has nothing to offer. All they can offer is their labor. Then the general public thinks, oh, okay, well, then I'll just, you know, this, our government knows better what that country needs, not me. 
But if you realize that that discourse is a cover-up for you know, exploiting uh, mineral-rich countries, whether in the African continent or in the Caribbean or in the Middle East, or for exploiting the labor or taking land, because land is still very important, you know, um, in terms of, of maximizing wealth for capitalism, um, then you're more able to resist this and say, okay, that's, that can't be true. And I do want to make a final point about, um, you know, the ev- evangelical approach, which had to do with uh, damning Haiti for beliefs in voodoo, right? And it's one of the reasons in my novel, I actually foreground voodoo beliefs, because voodoo beliefs, also going back to the Haitian Revolution, are what c- connected, uh, you know, Africans who knew they were human and were, had the right to agency and self-determination, it was one of the ways that they communicated with one another and one of the ways that they also buoyed themselves, healed themselves, because voodoo is a healing modality. Mm-hmm. It's about persistence. It's about connecting to ancestors. It's about respect for the land and respect for each other. Right. So it, for me, it's very important to always say, you know, people should not be afraid of voodoo. That's a, that's a Western construct, you know. Y'all, you're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm having a, a, a fire interview with Miriam J. A. Chancy, who has a new book out called Harvesting Haiti, Reflections on Unnatural Disasters. And I'm trying to figure out where to go next because you've touched on so much. I, I wanna... I'm still holding your last question about being in a Haitian Black women's body. Let's do that. And then I want to segue into the talking about Haitian women. So go for it. Okay, and we can connect those uh, well. So when you asked the question, I thought, oh, where do I start there? (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, here's the thing I want to say about that. One of the wonderful things, well, there are many wonderful, beautiful things about being from Haiti. And Haiti is a beautiful country. And I hope, um, you know, even as, as, as it's being devastated, it remains strikingly beautiful, as are the people. What I want to say about having been born in Haiti and raised there partially as a child, you know, some formative period of a formative period of my life, is that I benefited from being in a country where pretty much everyone looks like me, different shades of me. And so being in a black country and seeing people in all walks of life instills in you a sense of your um, your right to be in the world, you know. And that's something that has sustained me because my first uh, encounter with racism was actually as a child in Quebec. Uh, and then less so in Winnipeg, which is interesting, but there were some, some issues there. Uh, and then, of course, when I came to the United States, I thought I knew a lot because I had done, you know, uh, my master's on James Baldwin, you know, James Baldwin at a distance was kind of my, uh, I want to say my mentor in race, you know, relations, uh, having read so many of his essays and studied them, but I was not prepared for the level of uh, anti-Blackness that I encountered uh, in the United States, you know, in terms of not being able to rent um, apartments, you know, as a graduate student, uh, you know, being refused service, you know, in in certain states with, you know, white peers not knowing what's going on. Uh, my first position was in the South. Um, and I, I just, 
you don't know until you live it, you know? Yeah, especially because the United States projects this image of this well-integrated uh, democracy where everybody has the right to thrive, right? Or, or even one assumes, like, you know, if I'm, if I'm, I was reading Baldwin in the 80s as a teenager, right? And, and I was reading In Search of My Mother's Garden's Alice Walker, which led me to Hurston. One assumes these things are somewhat in the past, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And then you arrive and as an immigrant, but, you know, a Black immigrant, uh, and of course, I because I, I mainstreamed into English quite young, I don't have an accent. So I lived, I, I experienced racism as an African-American while not being mm. African-American. So it taught me a lot, you know, about what the reality is of the African-American condition. And at the same time, it took me much longer to realize that I was also being discriminated against as a Haitian. It took me much longer. And it, and it took me until after the earthquake to realize that certain things I was n- not able to decode um, from various populations had to do with being Haitian. Uh, and, it, and it was after the earthquake when I heard a lot of the things that I heard and, and have written about in Harvesting Haiti in the more personal essays, that I realized that there was a lot of anti-Haitianness. You know, and some of it in the United States goes back to the 80s and before Aged Club, you know, during the AIDS crisis the mislabeling of Haitians as AIDS Um, carriers. um, Some of it has to do with the influx of refugees, you know, quote unquote, boat people uh, during this time period as well. Some of it has to do with distortions about voodoo, you know, which we heard, which we've just talked about, um, even related to the connection to Haitians in Louisiana and also distortions in the historical record in the United States uh, in various parts of the population, you know, and so, so, but I really didn't understand this until until much later. And of course, as someone who fights for you know black rights in general, I also experienced from you know white colleagues, for example, a misapprehension. You know, sometimes they would say, "Oh, you're Haitian," so they would you know demarcate you as not african american for a different another kind of prejudice against you know black american populations and i would say oh no i am also this you know mm-hmm. um so that solidarity for me is very very important but it 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 has been interesting you know going back to initial question to be in this body and to be many things at once you know I, I know that I said I was going to segue into talking about Haitian women, but I'm going to digress to something else I wrote in the margins of your book repeatedly, mm-hmm. and that has bounced around in my head for as long as I've been trying to cover this issue, which is about mm. a decade at this point. Mm. Why doesn't anybody, sometimes it feels like, mm-hmm. or so few people across class, across nationality, across skin color, mm-hmm care about what is happening to Haiti? Well, the way I think about it is that we, you know, people of African descent and and mixed race descent, you know, different um, groups who suffered different kinds of marginalizations and, um, you know, neglect, you know, within, I think you could call it the belly of a beast, right? As Jose Marti once said. Um, that we are in some ways taught not to create bridges with other people who suffer marginalization under 
dominant ideologies. And then there is this effect, you know, sort of a scarcity effect. Well, if, if, if I, you know, stand with, with my neighbor, if I stand with Haiti, if I stand with Gaza, if I stand with, you know, uh, Native Americans, I'm going to get less from this powerful group that is telling me that I need to stand apart from these people who are like me or who have been positioned in similar ways, different ways, but similar ways. And we call that crabs in a barrel here. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so I think, I think this then it is very difficult for people who are embattled to sometimes perceive that their battle is actually the same as someone else's and that to join forces with that other group will actually strengthen them, you know, strengthen them, not just on a political or economic level, but I I really truly believe on a spiritual level, you know, like there are certain forces that are very hard to defeat, but if you know that somebody has your back in a different part of the world, in the, you know, in your own city, in a different part of the county, across class, and that you might be able to call on them, right, to speak up for you, then this makes a big difference. And, and we all have different capacities. I'm not asking that everybody, you know, everybody, you know, each person and each group has different you know, circles of influence where they can do some work on behalf of others. But that work needs to be done. And we need to get out of this idea that the resources are scarce because we're actually only looking at one kind of resource, Mm -hmm. usually economic and political, uh, granted by a power that is also trying to make sure that you'll stay in your corner, silenced and disconnected. And that's an impoverishment. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Miriam J.A. Chancy, who has a new book out called Harvesting Haiti, Reflections on Unnatural Disasters. All right. You say in the book, um, Haitian women are the backbone of Haitian society. Yes. Again, a multi-part question. (laughs) A, um, what do you mean by that? Okay. But then B... If you could talk about the types of violence Haitian women have been experiencing at the hands of the gangs, the military, UN sent forces. Yeah. Yeah. And then what what I think of is right, like the reason why, and I may be getting a little too woo-woo here, but the mm-hmm. reason why oppressors or enactors of violence target the powerful bodies, particularly of black women with rape, right? Mm-hmm is because then what does that trauma, that an act of trauma do mm-hmm. um, that interrupts their ability to continue to be the backbone or the strength of a society? Well, that's, that's exactly the purpose, right? Is to disrupt that powerful force, you know, knowing that women are often transmitters of culture in, in places like uh, Haiti, that is a... a, a an inheritance that the powers that be want to disrupt, right? Going back to uh, the symbolism of the, of the revolution. Um, So where to begin? I mean, I would say, you know, what do I, what do I mean by saying that women in Haiti are the backbone? So we have a a phrase in Haiti where we say that women are the potomitan, which means the center pole of the society. And the potomitan is also uh, symbolically, the peristyle in the vodou circle, 
So you can think of it in both in both ways. So it's like the center of a culture, whether you think of that as a spiritual center, or if you think of that as um, you know how the culture revolves or continues. Uh, and one of the other symbols of that of that putomita amongst women are women who are often overlooked, who are called the Madame Sarah, uh, who are the women who sell, you know, the market women in the in the marketplaces or in the streets, uh, who bring goods to the, the the general population across class. You know, without these women, uh, most of the food stables wouldn't be moving around around the country and being sold uh, in those marketplaces. And one of the things that I that I talk about both in Harvesting Haiti and also in What Storm is the fact that we really need to listen to those women. And we know that in the reconstruction after 2010, the women across class were shut out of conversations about reconstructing the country, which is really quite amazing, given that we know that culturally, Haitian women are the backbone of the country. And this is also because oftentimes, because of, of you know impoverishment, uh, political situations, uh, many male partners have to leave the country, right, to find work elsewhere, emigrating, sending back money. And so, and, and this is true across the Caribbean. So you have a population that has more women and more children in it than there, there are adult, adult men. Um, so I think it's, you know, and then those women at the same time, because of their persistence, are then targeted whenever there is a uh, turnover, and we know that in the early 1990s, uh, women were targeted by, you know, under the military coup of 91, which lasted for for several years, um, and were also targeted for torture uh, and other kinds of, you know, torture like, um, um, well, some people lost limbs. There's a very famous case of, of Alert Balance, who I wrote about in Framing Silence, who became part of an international case uh, which connected what was happening in Haiti in the early 90s to what had been happening in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and um, Alert Balance gave testimony that resulted in the international law that made uh, gender-based violence, uh, specifically rape, actionable under international law. So when you, when you realize something like this, you start seeing that Haiti is actually integrated in global conversations around uh, the use of women's bodies and especially black women's bodies in, um, you know, interrupting the cultural, uh, you know, persistence of, of, a, of a nation, of a group of people. Now, what's interesting about the case of Haiti is that, you know, so first we do have to say that it has become and has been for a very long time, a very patriarchal society. So even though under the revolution, there was more equality um, over time, especially as the country then started emulating the new nation, emulating um, you know, the, the colonial uh, idea of a nation state, it became more and more patriarchal. At the same time, as I'll say in the same breath, that Haitian women um, created a Haitian feminism that predates some of the Haitian feminism seen elsewhere in the Americas. So that was happening simultaneously. Grew more patriarchal, Haitian feminism, you know, uh, advocating and resisting and creating new paradigms. But in the 1990s, the kinds of violence against the gender-based violence that emerged was under the military. And some Haitian feminists have written about the fact that the, that kind of violence did, was not there, except under the U.S. occupation, 
1934, um, in in this kind of way. So that usually when you you came across uh, rape cases, they were always um, you know cases you know under political auspice, you know political um, situations where the rape was motivated by politics uh, and always by 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 an external force, you know. And so, and then this continues uh, into the occupation's intervention of um, 1994, you know, with U.S. military again, and then becomes acute under the U.N. presence from 2007 to 2017. And it was uh, a Haitian women's group that actually began the process of getting the U.N. out of Haiti when those cases became documented uh, and you know, legally acted against. So it's really essential to think about the role that Haitian women play, even as they are not being given equal representation politically. Um, I think since 2005, um, around that time, 2005, 2007, there is a constitutional amendment that 30% of elected officials uh, should be women in the country. But of course, elections have not been held now for several years since uh, Moise, Moise's term. But can I say w- one last thing? <laughs> I just wanted to loop back to those market women, because one of the things I found out more recently is that for the first time in history, the market women have organized across the Republic, so across Haiti, in their own association. So this is since 2019. Um, the market women, the Madame Sarah, that nobody, you know, asks what do they think the, the, should happen in the future. Um, they have organized now to advocate for their rights. 48,000 women strong. These are some of the most, the poorest women in the country and also the most visible in terms of being uh, singled out for retribution by the paramilitary and others because they are, you know, in the streets doing their work. And interestingly, those women are being supported by working class men who move their produce to find ways to uh, secure their, their, um, you know, their bodies so that they are not violated, so that the men are finding new routes to move produce, to meet the women, to hand over the, the goods so that those women are not caught uh, in the crossfire or, or singled out and, uh, and uh, you know, suffering violence. All right. I have two more questions to ask you. You mentioned, uh, this is still in the introduction, that Haitian police are U.S. founded, trained, and funded. Mm -hmm. As someone who does police accountability work here in the U.S., what I wrote in the margins, again, Mm -hmm. of your book, um, was U.S. police, United States police were born out of chattel slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And also the labor movement, right? The attempts to to crush labor movement in the North, Mm -hmm. which influences its culture, policies, practices. That's why we say it can't be fixed, right? It's Mm -hmm. doing what it was born to do. Um, how is how is this the culture of U.S. policing that then founded Haitian policing reflected in the way Haitian bodies are policed? Mm. Well, that's a great question. Whew. Well, um, the short answer to that question is that uh, my understanding of how the Haitian police became constituted under the you know by the U.S. was that this occurred during the U.S. occupation between 1915 and 1934. Uh, because at the beginning of the occupation, 
there was a resistance movement from within Haiti. Actually, it was across the Dominican Republic and Haiti because the U.S. also occupied the Dominican Republic in this time. And there was an armed resistance of Dominican and Haitian men, uh, some women as well, called the Cacos. And they, you know, put up a fight. You know, they resisted. And the leader of that movement, uh, Charlemagne Peralt, was killed in 1919. And the Dominican leader of of that movement was killed in 1922, which ended uh, that movement. Which is to say that when there were armed um, Haitians, you know, fighting for, for the rights of their people, they were brutally, brutally put down by the U.S. military. And then what took the place of the CACO was the U.S.-formed police. So uh, I can refer your, your listeners to a, a new book by Grace Sander, who is African-American but wrote on the U.S. occupation and goes into more detail about how this occurred and, and how that developed. Uh, we also know that under the Duvalier regime, the U.S. backed the, you know, the Tonto Makut, you know, the, the armed police guard that um, the Duvalier created, the henchman that he created. So there's a long history there of using the, you know, I don't know if you want to call it the governmental structure, but whoever is, you know, has the has control of the population uh, by using the, 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 you know, people themselves within the country to then police the order. And, you know, it's interesting. I was re- I was I was teaching Jamaica, Jamaica Kincaid's a small place uh, recently. I teach Caribbean women's literature, and in that text, Kincaid talks about the fact that there is uh, a military presence in Antigua, very very small island, but that presence is not there to like you know Antigua has no enemies is basically what she says, and so that military exists to police the people inside the island, not to protect it from people outside the island. And this is the case in Haiti and other parts of the Caribbean. And, you know, when I when we were talking about this with my students, they were really shocked because, because they are trained to think that armies are there to protect the national interest. But in countries like Haiti, the police, the army, we, there is no army currently because it was dismantled after the Duvalier regime's end in 1986. And there was some noise about bringing it back uh, under Martelly, which was not done. But now we have this paramilitary, which is armed. You know, where are those arms coming from uh, on an island? So, so we're back to Haitians being treated like a threat, even as diminished as people are fighting every day to put food on their table, to be able to uh, have gainful lives, existences, and being policed from within by people from within their own country. And so I think this is, so it's slightly different in terms of a composition, of course, right? In terms of policing that takes place in the U.S., but in the U.S. too, we have this in communities of color. Right. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the interventions, which are military, which are coming from the outside, are again, not about um, creating a safer environment because all those violations that occurred under the UN presence, um, you know, the UN was not helping Haitians to have safer existences. They were protecting the properties 
owned by internationals? I'd like to give you just, you know, 60 seconds to say your closing words to my listeners. I mean, the question that I was going to ask you, which is probably like too in depth mm. for the, the time that we have, but it, it is um, if the world mm. really wanted to help Haiti mm. and not just offer lip service mm-hmm. to helping Haiti, mm-hmm. what is the roadmap? You can either answer that question or you can, <laughs> you can decide what, what the last 60 seconds of our time together are. Well, you know, um, I'm a writer first and, and foremost, and, and I think through my writing. And so harvesting uh, Hey TV's essays, many of which are very personal, uh, and What Storm, What Thunder, you know, my novel on the earthquake, are about making clear to readers that, you know, the humanity of Haitians and how much we have had and have to offer, uh, both in terms of our history and our current path, you know, this is a country filled with people with, you know, so many cultural and ideological attributes and who persist for their rights. And this is, you know, what I would want people to take away in Harvesting Haiti at the end of the, of the book. I have a number of resources, you know, organizations that have longstanding uh, presences, positive presences in Haiti and often Haitian leadership that people can find out more about and, you know, find on the internet, follow, contribute to, and educate themselves through. So there's a number of avenues to do that. Uh, And I would say, you know, listen to what Haitians are saying, you know, on the ground, in their writings, uh, in their art, to have a better understanding of what is taking place, what has taken place, and to contribute to a better future, better outcome for Haitians in uh, you know, acknowledgement of the power of the revolution, but also an acknowledgement of the persistence of people right now. You've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Miriam J. A. Chancy, a Guggenheim Fellow and HBA Chair of the Humanities at Scripps College. She is the author of Autotoctonomies, Transnationalism, Testimony and Transmission in the African Diaspora, among other books, including four novels, the latest of which is What Storm, What Thunder. Her latest, which we have been discussing today, is Harvesting Haiti, Reflections on Unnatural Disasters. Miriam, oh my gosh, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for the amazing questions and for the opportunity to talk about Haiti and Haitian women. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Vibe. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>